Uh, if you want to turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 2, and last week we were talking about the key for really similar to what we talked about the core values today, um, discipleship and what that looks like in society and in the local church, um, how that naturally flows through relationships. And uh, it naturally throws, flows through families and through um, relationship networks, and uh, it's not as complicated as we make it. We have made this uh, discipleship into some kind of really dysfunctional jump from, from what was simple and organic and natural to something very dysfunctional and less organic and cumbersome and difficult and, uh, and far less effective. Far less effective. In fact, um, probably would be good uh, if you ever did a little, you did a little Google search here on organic vegetables and um, as opposed to, opposed to the engineered. But if you look at the two, you look at the ones now that, that have been in, you know, engineered and changed and whatever, and they are just lush and huge and great, whatever, but they don't taste as good. And here's the biggest thing. They don't reproduce. They don't reproduce. You have to plant them every year because they're not reproducing. And because they've been so engineered, you've got to buy them from the store to be able to get these things to grow, to be these ginormous tomatoes that are like footballs and things like that. But you, they don't taste as good, and they don't reproduce. And what we want is a reproducing faith that it's just it's the way God intended for it to be. And so in Titus chapter 2, as we think about discipleship, and we think about, as we talked about last week, passing the baton. Okay, you remember that last week? As we pass the baton of faith from one generation to the next generation, what does that look like? Here's the passage. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. And older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the younger women, to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their husbands, that the word of God might or may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. And so we talked about uh, four things briefly, and I'll just review them for you because I think they're that important to think about discipleship as those, when we're discipling, pouring into other people, we're passing the faith from one generation to the next, we want to be explainers of the gospel. We want to be able to understand and to articulate what the gospel is. That's key. Number two, we want to be examples of it. You can't talk about something that you're not living in your own life. So are we exemplifying the gospel? Are we living the gospel out in our lives? Are we examples of the, the changing power of Jesus and, and uh, in, the, in the power of the Holy Spirit and the, in the power of uh, the transformative power of the Word of God? Is it... Are, are people seeing that in our lives? Let me pause again just to clarify. Being an example doesn't mean that you are perfect. Being an example is you're showing how imperfection is able to grow through Christ, how we can mature and we make progress in growing in our Christ-likeness to look on the outside the way we are now, how, how we have been changed on the inside. Okay, does that make sense? 
It's inside working out. Jesus in us, indwelling us, working out, rather than outside working in. It's not about us conforming on the outside our behavior patterns and behavior modification. Behavior modification is not the gospel. Transformation, taking a dead heart and putting in a live heart and beginning to change and transform us, that is the gospel, and that's how we change. Okay, And so being an example of faith does not mean you have it all figured out and you have, you're a model of perfection. Jesus is already doing that part, okay? And you can't do it as well as him. So rather than being perfect parents and perfect disciples and perfect Christians and perfect whatever so that people can follow after us and just feel that much more inferior, okay, let us all humble ourselves and realize none of us have arrived. We're all growing in our relationship with Christ. In fact, the theological word, you would call this progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification. In other words, we are progressing in our sanctification of becoming more like Jesus. There are some denominations and some faiths that teach that you can be basically sanctified in this lifetime and completely without sin for a period of time or conceivably till Jesus comes back. I, I just don't find that in the book. I don't think that's true. And I, sets, I think it sets people up to exalt themselves, elevate themselves, and to uh, create discouragement and a whole lot of other problems, and it's just not biblical. Okay? You can be completely sinless and without any sin in the areas that God has revealed to you in a moment. But there's areas of your heart and your life and your pride that you just, you just hadn't put the light on yet. It's still there. Other people might see it. You might not see it. You might have confessed everything God's revealed to you, and you're, and you're yielding that to the Holy Spirit. That's, that's great. But there might be other areas that he has not yet revealed. So again, be an example. doesn't mean we've arrived. It means that we're in process, and we're showing people how to repent and trust in Jesus and grow in the things of Christ so that they can see the gospel not just profess with our mouth as explainers, but changing us as we are examples. Does everybody understand what it means to be an example now? Okay. Not Perfection. Thirdly, we want to be an encourager. You know what we need? We need people to come aside us and say, hey, look, keep plugging on. Man, keep walking. Would you keep, just repent of that and grow. And it's, listen, we're, none of us have right. Yeah, we all make mistakes. We, all, we, we need people to come beside us and help us and encourage us in our walk with Jesus. That's why you need one another. I need you and you need me. We need one another to be encouragers in the faith. We don't have each other. It's going to be you, you can't run the race alone. You can't do that. In fact, when we're talking about a relay race, what good is it if you got one guy running and he has nobody to hand the baton to, right? You got to have we're, we do this as a team. And so, explainers, examples, encouragers, and then lastly, verse seven, he talks about show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works in your teaching. Show integrity, dignity, sound speech cannot be condemned. And then it ends in verse ten says showing all faith so that in everything we may adorn or wear the doctrine of God, our Savior. So we want to be an exhibitor of the faith, an exhibitor of the faith. It should be evident that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ and we are clothed in what we believe and in our, Jesus, in our Savior. Okay, not just conceptually, but, but I mean, that, that's, that's our identity. That's where I rest. I rest in who I am in Christ. Does that make sense? That is the faith that we're passing on. Now, let's go a step beyond that because he gets into some things and he says some things in this that fly against our culture 
significantly, okay? Uh, when he starts talking about specific differences in our, uh, in gender roles. In fact, some would say, you know, what, that might work back then, but today things are so much worse. It's confusing enough to say, what are the roles of a man and a woman? And then what are the roles of a husband and a wife? And, and, and how are we supposed to function in those roles, okay? That, that, that's confusing enough. You used to have the Archie Bunker, patriarchal, yelling at his wife, mad all the time, sitting on the couch, lazy, gluttonous, whatever guy. That's one model. Most of you don't even know what I'm talking about. Some of you do. Um, that's the way a lot of us, are certainly our grandparents, maybe kind of that was their era where you got the man and he, he provides for his family and, and, and his responsibilities end with providing financially for his family. And as long as he's done that, He's passed the baton. He's done. And other than that, he can be a jerk and yell at everybody and whatever and sit in his corner. And he comes home once he's got the paycheck and he sits down on the couch and expects the newspaper and the television. But back then you had to have children to be able to change the channels. Nowadays you have a remote control. Back then you had children. Kids, could you turn the knob over across the room? To t- you guys, some of you know what I'm talking about in the old Zenith. Now it's like a television is a picture on the wall. But then it was like a, half the furniture in your living room is what a television was, right? Remember that? So that's the way it used to be. And then we, we have progressed and grown as society, and now we have this, what we call an egalitarian model of family. And that's a cut it down the middle, split. Uh, husband has these responsibilities, wife has it, and it's all equal. You do half the laundry, I do half the laundry. You make half the bed, I make half the bed. You vacuum half the, I make half the, you make half the income. I, in fact, a lot of families, a lot of couples, they even have separate bank accounts and they keep everything split down the middle and everything is equal, egalitarian. And that's, so the pendulum has swung from something it wasn't intended to be to something certainly as far on the other side. And then you say, well, where is the Bible in the middle of that? Where, where, where have we left biblical gender roles? What does that look like? And now, not only are we, are we, off on the roles of a husband, roles of a wife, roles of a man. Now, now we've got 58, according to Facebook, 58 different selections and options for your gender specifications. Okay, now, I'm not going to go into detail about that, but it's not just male or female okay, anymore. There's, like, there's 50, literally 58 different options that you can pick okay, for um, your profile settings on gender identity. Needless to say... The world is a bit confused, right? Okay, on top of that, let me throw another thing into it. Now we're arguing in our court systems right now, and it looks like um, rationality and uh, any sense of biblical identity is thrown to the wind as we are fighting. We, it is being, the role and the definition of marriage is, is greatly under attack in our country. Let's redefine marriage. Who should, a marriage equality. I mean, half your Facebook friends probably have a little, little, the little equal sign for marriage equality. And it's not about being respectful of other people's rights and choices or whatever. That, that's not the issue. The issue is, can we really take something that God gave us and created and change it into something that it's not? And at one point, what point when you redefine something, does the definition stop? I mean, if you're saying that there can be, um, you know, same genders can get married. I mean, what about if four people want to get married? What about eight people? What about if 20 people? What about if uh, we want to break down the age barriers and we want to be like uh, Muhammad and we want to have a six-year-old bride, okay? A, a man wants to, can you, why can't you do that? Once you change the definition, you can't stop and say, well, this is just, we just want to be equal to everybody. You can't do that. Either you are equal and you totally erase and eradicate the definition of marriage or you don't. 
But once you push an absolute boundary, it's something that's defined. If you want to create another category like Facebook, create another category. But once you redefine something, society unravels. And suddenly marriage is irrelevant. It doesn't mean anything anymore. You say, man, things are really messed up. Yeah, well, let me read you this quote. In the old days, in fact, right down to recent years, married women ran their homes as as their chief domain. Their husbands would come home at night and plop themselves down by the fireside, lay their cares aside, and rest from their busy day out in the world. Without question, the men were in charge, yet an atmosphere of harmony and hard work prevailed under their roofs. It was a day when their wives, beautiful women, burned only with their desire to make their men all that they could be, especially in business. This division of labor was never territorial. Neither partner laid claim to ownership of anything. Rather, they cooperated for the good of the family. She worked as diligently at home as he did in his public activities. Nowadays, though, it seems as though women only want to pursue material gain. They want to be rid of even the most basic household responsibility responsibilities as if to become nothing but consumers of luxury items often bankrupting their, bankrupting their families in the process. Another observer lamented, there used to be a time when an honest child was raised not at the hand of some hired nurse, but in his mother's lap and at her knee. In those days, a mother could have no higher praise than that she managed her home, her house well, and she gave herself to help to her children. Of course, she had plenty of help when occupied elsewhere, She could call upon a trustworthy grandmother to care for the little saplings taking root in her home. She knew that the elder would not stand for any foul language or misbehavior. Religiously, and with the the utmost delicacy, the older lady would oversee not only the serious tasks of her young charges, but also their games and play. Nowadays, by contrast, too many children are handed over almost from birth to some daycare worker who might let just another... uh, who might let just anyone assist her. Quite often, the least qualified sort of person. These people take no thought of the kind of conversation they have giving children their earliest impressions of the world while their minds are still green and unformed. It's a disgrace, really, that parents could care so little about these caretakers, uh, what these caretakers say in front of their children. Even worse, the parents themselves make no effort to train their little ones in goodness and self-control. As a result, children grow up in an atmosphere of laxity and poor manners. Over time, they come to lose all sense of shame and all respect, both for themselves and for other people. How long ago do you think that was written? What do you think, Joseph? Okay, 1966. Anybody else want to go earlier or later? How long ago do you think that was written? Anybody else? 70s. Anybody else? Need somebody from this section over here. Yeah. Was that 80s? Okay. You guys want to venture? Every section's got to got to weigh in. What's your consensus? What do you think? Was that 1908? All right, that's good. You're the closest. Okay, you're the closest. Actually, it was written uh, about 2,000 years ago um, by Columella and Tacitus who were Greek historians, writing of the first century. 
nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. In fact, um, Caesar Augustus said that, uh, that Rome was being bankrupted because they were spending all of their money on importing luxury goods from China and other places and not on their own economy and the things that were being um, built and made in their country. And so all of their money and their wealth and their future was going into other nations rather than building up their own nation to the point where they finally said, you know what, we're not having enough kids um, in our country. So they started elevating the role of mothers that particularly would have a bunch of children and they had special cloaks that they would wear if they had over so many kids and they could be, in fact, a seat of honor at the um, Colosseum and other events. And they were given positions of honor trying to encourage the uh, Roman population to, to up the birth rate, okay, to get, because they weren't uh, having enough kids. And too many people were coming from the, in, from the outside and invading their country and their land. They weren't keeping up with the population. And, and, and Caesar knew that their country is going to fall apart if things don't change. And the same thing is happening in our country today. Now, what does the Bible have to say about these things? What does Scripture say about the roles of husbands and wives and all these things. Again, we've established that this isn't a new problem. This has been going on. So understand this. In the first century, when it looked absolutely hopeless, Jesus steps onto the scene and he takes women and he elevates them and he takes men and he helps them understand their, um, his intentions for their lives. And suddenly the Christian family is born and you have things like Paul writing within 100 years of this stuff and giving some instruction on what the roles of a husband and wife really in a healthy society, this is what they should look like. And in no way was it knocking one person down or another. In fact, in, in, in exchange for the egalitarian equal kind of deal where everything's equal or the extreme patriarchal where the man rules the roost and beats everybody into submission and everybody in his household is his property, which is clearly not the biblical model, the Bible really talks about what, what you might know, you might have heard in, in biology uh, as symbiotic relationships, okay? Symbiotic relationships where you have, uh, you have a fish that has bacteria growing in its gills and it suffocates the fish, but just so happens there's a little fish that loves that bacteria and is able to eat the bacteria off the gills of the big fish, and so uh, he has a constant food source. The bigger fish has a filtering process, something to clean his gills so that he can breathe better, and they have what we call in science a symbiotic relationship. They are far better together than they would ever be apart. Symbiotic relationships, you understand? And so being in their distinct and separate roles, they work together in a way that's complementarian. So we would say as a church, we would believe in and we encourage and we want to foster in marriages a complementarian role, not egalitarian but complementarian. We, we're distinct. I, need I go into an explanation and waste time talking about the difference between men and women? I mean, I think we all have got that, okay? Um, just the way our brains work, uh, beyond just the biology, we're vastly different creatures, okay? And so, um, you know, one simple illustration of that is, uh, you know, women are called the weaker vessel in that. Uh, that, that would be like the difference between a, a, a china, little cup, little china, you know, Sip your tea, beautiful, nice, functional, carries whatever you're drinking, fine, you know, it's great. And then, like, guys are like a Stanley mug, you know, the thermos. You can drive a, a dump truck over it, it's all right, okay, you can handle it. It's kind of ugly, doesn't really look nice, it's a little dinged up and messed up, and probably not always that clean, probably smells a little bit. But, um, but you can step on it, run over it, whatever, and it's fine, right? And it, both of them function 
in a similar way in that they, they carry, you know, drink for folks, but, but they're different. One is a little weaker and delicate and, and you know, more beautiful, more interesting, more, probably cleaner. Uh, but, but we understand, okay? And so that's one distinction and difference between when the Bible talks about there's differences and distinctions. Now, that's not to say, uh, anyway, let's move on. So understanding this, let me give you a couple more quotes from um, the recent movements in our culture. Uh, Linda Gordon said this, The nuclear family must be destroyed. Whatever its ultimate meaning, she's a feminist, by the way, whatever its ultimate meaning, the breakup of families now is an objectively revolutionary process. Thank you, Linda Gordon. Uh, Sheila Cronin, the leader of the feminist organization uh, Now, N-O-W, says, since, marriages, since marriage constitutes slavery for women, it is clear that the women's movement must concentrate on attacking this institution. Freedom for women cannot be won without the abolition of marriage. If we're going to free women from the shackles of slavery brought on by birthing children that shackle them that much more in a marriage that shackles them, if we're going to free them from all of this bondage and captivity, we've got to destroy marriages. And what does the gospel say of these things? What does the Bible say of these things? Marriage is of utmost vital importance in being one of the greatest, arguably the greatest, testimony of the gospel to the world around us. Doesn't matter, doesn't mean everybody has to be married, doesn't mean that everybody has a perfect marriage, but understand that marriage is one of the ways, one of the primary ways that the gospel is communicated to the world around us. And it is a vital and a critical part of society. And instead of us arguing and getting mad and fighting over and against feminism or, you know, gender roles being redefined on Facebook or all these different things that are pathetic and disgusting and problems and and a strain on society and, and not healthy, let us fight for the fact that the gospel needs to be displayed in and through our marriages, in our families, in the way that men relate to women, in the way that women relate to men in general, but specifically in marriage. We've got to redefine this stuff. And this is one of the things that we need to pass the baton on from generation to generation. Because all of us, very few of us, if any, in this room, I would not be shocked if nobody in this room, but arguably very few in this room, grew up with a great example of biblical, God-honoring marriage roles in, in their family. Grew up in a healthy family. You'd say, I absolutely, I'm telling you, my parents... We're not perfect, but if I could emulate their marriage, wow, that would be such a healthy, wonderful thing. That would be incredible if I could emulate it because it was we. I grew up in just a God honoring, biblically informed, healthy home. Most of us didn't grow up in that home. I certainly didn't. And so, how do we redefine and find biblically and reform the institution of marriage uh, based upon the Word of God? And he says, "But as for me, teach. As for you, teach." What accords with sound doctrine? Older men, be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. Again, mature men are to be sober, clear-minded, not clouded um, with clouded judgment, 
dignified, not acting frivolously, but being, having integrity in, in, in the way that they live their lives. Self-controlled, curbing of desires and impulses. We, we live in a society that says, chase after the desire and the impulse. Whatever your desire, whatever your impulse, go get it. And, and biblically saying, no, the older men don't be like that and teach the younger men not to be like that. Help them understand the trajectory of if they go in that direction, where they're going to end up. Help them be able to connect the lines, not from there's this thing I want and I'm going after it. Help them to see if they get it, where that will lead them beyond, right? That's where life experience comes into. Let me understand. Let me help you understand. Once you climb that ladder and you get to the top, let me tell you what you're going to see on the top and why that's not a ladder you want to climb and which wall it's going to be leaning on. It might look like a great ladder and you want to just chase after it and run up. But as Proverbs says, can man embrace fire into his bosom. We were at a camp with my boys a couple weeks ago. We had, were talking about this proverb, somewhat filtered, um, and we were talking about how can man take a fire and grab it and those rot, you know, red hot embers and embrace it and hug it and just, mm, I love the fire, and, and not be burned? We need some dignified men to say, guys, ah, you're passionate, excited, whatever. Let me help you understand where this leads. Let me help you understand the consequences of these decisions. But we live in a culture that says, well, we re- who are we to impose our values on somebody? Please impose your values on your children, on other people. Let us come together as a body of Christ and inform ourselves with the Bible and, and help one another grow in these things. We need some men that are self-controlled and dignified, sound, healthy in their faith. They understand the truth. They can communicate it. In love, man, Christian love, they're, they're willing to, they love the body of Christ so much that they're willing to say hard things in gracious and kind ways to people that might not want to hear it. But firmly and lovingly pushing the truth and encouraging people with the truth that they might be different. And in steadfastness, that means that they don't just speak their mind and then walk away. But steadfast, man, they're committed to one another into growing. This is the gospel displayed in waiting for people to change. We're all in process. How beautiful would that be if we had men living that way? And then women, older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, dignified in their demeanor, not slanderers. Did you hear about? I got a prayer request, and I'll tell you right now. We need to pray for that, that, that stuff. Let's not do that, okay? Let, let us not be like that. I, I was um, aware of a situation where there was uh, three ladies um, and... Uh, conversation and one of the ladies just was very fleshly in, in this situation very fleshly and the other two women being godly ladies um as this one left they could have totally turned in and been like can you believe that you know just and just but the, it not it, it wasn't necessary to even say and one of them said there well, let's we need to pray for her and they just prayed for her and that's it end of the conversation that was a godly example. How wonderful. And they could have totally thrown that other girl under the bus and just and made themselves feel better about themselves because they're not like this other person. And, you know, and, but they didn't do that. They, they just loved her by saying, you know, we've all been there. Let's just let's pray for her. Let's pray for her. And they just prayed for it. That would be awesome. Older women, reverent behavior, not slanderers, slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, not controlled by substances or other things that they turn to as false saviors, but they, they turn to Jesus, and therefore they can teach what is good. And then younger women. So you have the category of older men, young, older women, now younger men. Younger men are to, to so train, um, well, they're challenged. I'm sorry, I'm younger women are to be trained, so trained younger women to love their husbands and their children 
and to be self-controlled, pure, working at home and kind and submissive to their own husbands. I am concerned uh, greatly, and as I, Janet and I talk about this, um, in the discouragement, particularly that Facebook has ushered in among women about how you know everybody posts the best thing about their life, not how bad their their day um, you know is really going, and uh, they don't put the whole um, you know here's what's really going on in my life. In fact, uh, not well. If I could pick on Aubrey, she was just telling me that she wants to write a book on this, and so you guys can help her do that. But she she was telling me about uh, Facebook. She showed this picture of of the kids in the back seat. Bailey was not involved in this incident. She took the picture. Okay, she was on the she had the trigger. Right, and one kid is just happy with a gift or something, just smiling and so happy, and everything's great. And it, this is the moment—that's the Facebook moment. And then the next picture was what's really going on in the background. And the other kid was throwing something and screaming and mad because they didn't get what the other. And there was like anarchy in the back seat. And that is all of us can relate to that. That's in our lives, with or without kids, we find ourselves in that situation. And there's what we publish, and then there's what's really going on, right? And 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 we put this. Thank you for sharing that. That was really, and thank you for letting me share that. It was all over Girl Scout cookies. Yeah, there you go. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and so we all understand now. And, and so this is the way we present ourselves. And, and then on top of that, it's like, uh, you know, first day of school. You know, all of the late, I'm so sad if my kids go back to school and I'm going to do it. I don't know how I'm going to make it and whatever. And then the kids are in school and the next picture, they're reading a book at Starbucks. Loving my freedom. Loving life. Things are great. So awesome. You know, do you love your kid? Do you not? Because I, I need some my time. I need some mama time. I need some of my time. I need some time to go do my thing. Now, now, please understand. I understand mamas are, I understand, are exhausted in a thankless, difficult job. We're going to talk about that briefly here in just a second. But nonetheless, is it necessary for us to put out there for the world how hard and horrible and, you know, again, just feeds that idea that, Marriage and kids is slavery by pushing that out there, saying, oh, man, my kids are killing me. They're horrible. Oh, this is... You know, instead of dealing with the issues and helping formatively to grow them in the things of Christ. Women don't need to be discouraged in their parenting. They desperately need encouragement, right? And mamas need people to come beside them and encourage them. Keep going. Look, the days are long, but the years are short. Hang in there. I mean, in a couple of years, this will be, your kids are going to be out of the house. Remember, the marbles, 936 weeks go by real fast, right? That's how much time you had to pour in your kids. They don't last long. And so, yeah, it's tough. And, yeah, your house will not be sanitary or clean for the next 18 years. We understand that. But don't be discouraged by it. Be encouraged. It's such a blessing. The season passes. Okay, so be, be encouraged. We, we need older women to be encouraging younger women to love their husbands and their children, and not run after what the world says is going to make them happy, which is delegating to other people all of the formative, precious opportunities that they have to develop and nurture their children in the things of Jesus and to push them off onto other people who will not do as good of a job as you can do in pouring into your own children. Love their husbands and their children. Be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own Husbands, I, I, let me stop and just say one last qualifier here. I, I'm, I'm not saying that uh, I don't want you to be discouraged. If your family isn't the perfect whatever of what you think it should be, if you're you know in a situation 
whatever. The husband's not pulling his weight, not being what he's supposed to be, or wife's not. What, and this isn't condemnation. Please understand that. But we're saying biblically, this is what we're supposed to be striving for and fighting for. And this is what we want to see the gospel doing. And we want to work to redefine these things. But this isn't, the, the intent is not to be pushing condemnation. If you don't quit your job and go home, then this is what, you're, I, I'm not saying that. You pray through those things. We're glad to walk through that with you and counsel and encourage you any way we can. But nonetheless, I, we're not saying you have to do it this way, that way, whatever. But it would be worthwhile for us to take the word of God and to place it as an authority over us and to make sure that we're conforming to it and we're thinking through these things biblically rather than just doing what our parents did or what society does or what seems to be the most convenient out there, right? Younger women, submissive to their own husbands and the, that the word of God may not be uh, reviled. Elizabeth Elliot said this, a biblically informed family with biblically informed roles of masculinity and femininity, fatherhood and motherhood are powerful testimonies of the gospel. Powerful testimonies of the gospel. Younger men, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be models of good works in your teaching. Show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing to say about us. There's uh, two kind of thoughts I want to I finish with. One, let me give you some quick thoughts from uh, Rock and the Rolls book I just read from you. This is an outline of some of the things he puts. Uh, two definitions by John Piper, which are really good, and then um, some suggestions on roles, which you can explore more in depth should you desire to get the Rock and the Rolls book, which was very formative and helpful for Janet and I early in our marriage. I would highly recommend it. Uh, but talking about the difference in men and women and gender roles, uh, John Piper put it this way, at the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility. Just a sense for all men, single, married, with kids, without kids, doesn't matter. All men, and we want to raise boys into this, there's a, there's a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, and to protect women, notice M-E-N, women plural, in ways that are appropriate to a man's differing relationships. I am to live uh, and to exemplify my, my heart and my life, a mature masculinity in showing benevolent responsibility for all women in ways appropriate in the differing relationships in my life. Obviously, different towards Janet than I would be to my girls, different towards um, other women as I would be to my family. But nonetheless, there's a sense of, of benevolent leadership and protection and um, provision that I, would, I should exhibit for any woman. Does that make sense? Exemplifying the gospel. Dying to myself. You know what myself wants to do? Myself wants to do whatever I want to do with my time, my money, my resources, my focus. I don't want to be benevolent and responsible for anybody. I would like to be benevolent and responsible for myself. But the gospel says that I am to be like Jesus, who, though he had everything, was willing to lay aside the riches of heaven that we through his poverty might become rich. He was willing to lay his life down and die so that others can live. And so the gospel is seen in my life when I die to myself and I live a life where Jesus through me shows benevolent responsibility in leading, providing, and protecting women in ways appropriate to man's different relationships. And likewise, women, the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition 
to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a man, a woman's differing relationships. It, whether you are married or not doesn't matter. You can still show some um, a disposition towards affirming and, be, and be encouraging and receiving uh, and nurturing strength and leadership from worthy men in ways that are appropriate to a woman's differing relationships. That's an overarching, very good theme or, or definitions to work under. But, but being more specific, in a husband's core concerns, how does this flesh out in marriage specifically? Men are called to be not just lead their home, but to be servant leaders. As I just talked about, laying aside the riches of heaven, but being willing to take on poverty so that those around you could become rich. Through That's the way Jesus modeled. What does that look like for men? Greatest need of a man is to be respected. And uh, greatest need of a woman is to be loved and cherished. And so we find that in Ephesians chapter 5. So specifically looking at these things, how they flesh out. Throw this next slide up there. Um, husband, servant leaders. What does that look like? Companionship, security, and significance. Companionship. Men are to show um, companionship to their wives, husbands to their wives, uh, providing security. Wife needs security. It doesn't mean that he makes more than she makes. It just means that, uh, that there's security and then he provides. There's a period. I'll give you one quick example. When Janet and I were in seminary and um, had a bad job situation, church experience, and uh, I had to leave that job and um, resigned from it. And Janet was the only one getting a regular paycheck. I got a little money here and there doing some different things. But um, ultimately, she was the only one. And, and we would talk about this. And I, I, we, we talked about the reality that I didn't want her to feel the weight that she is the breadwinner for the family, even though she was the breadwinner for the family. Right? But I want her to know you could quit tomorrow and I'll go work for five different pizza companies if I have to deliver in pizza or whatever. I'll do what I'll, I'll it's my responsibility to provide for a family. So in this season, you know, this is what things look like, but I don't, she, she doesn't not, she didn't need to carry that weight and that sense of responsibility. And so I wanted to give her security in that. You don't have to be the protective provider. That's my role. You don't have to wear that, but thank you. I'm thankful that you have a job and a paycheck. That's great. Praise the Lord. But it's not your responsibility, security. And then significance. Husbands are need to be giving their wives significance. Where else are they going to get it? Where else are they going to be encouraged in the um, thankless job of being a mom and a wife, if husbands, if we aren't encouraging and spurring them on in that role. Nobody else is going to recognize and encourage them. And so we have a God-given responsibility to love our wives, a command to love our wives. And one of the ways is by giving them significance and encouragement. Wife's core concerns as a helper lover is companionship likewise. And then support, being encouraging, even as that past definition we looked at, biblical uh, femininity. Admiring. And encouraging. Listen, let me tell you a secret about all men and certainly your husband's women, okay? They, though they are prideful and thick-headed and stubborn, they are incredibly insecure. By nature, men are highly insecure, which is why we act so prideful, bullheaded, and, um, and stubborn. And so they need desperately your encouragement and your admiration and your support. And then physical responsiveness. That is to be, on both sides, fulfilled within the context of marriage. And a lot of marriages have problems because uh, husbands and wives are looking other places, visually, intellectually. Why is uh, Fifty Shades of Grey so popular in Christian circles? Why would that be? Well, because we don't understand this stuff. We're not living this stuff out biblically in the way that God intended 
uh, Song of Solomon, there was a place, um, and I think it's in chapter 1, called Engedi. And Engedi was a place where there was nourishment, and it was like a haven in the midst of the desert. There was this one place where there was a spring, and there was some lush green, and it was a place that was a place of security and of peace and of refreshment. And, and it's pictured in Song of Solomon as being, this is what marriage is supposed to be for the husband and for the wife. It's an escape away from the craziness and the, you know, the, the famine of the world. You can come in the context of your marriage and have a place of security and encouragement. Now, landing the plane, what does all this say? Let me go back to verse 7. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Here's the bottom line. The gospel is, the question to ask yourself, is the gospel visible in my life, in my family, in my marriage, and in my family? Is the gospel visible in my life individually, for those who are single or those married, whatever, doesn't matter, everybody, is the gospel visible in my life? Is it also visible in, assuming this is your circumstance, in my marriage? Or am I preparing for marriage? Am I living a life that where I am ready for in God's timing? Should he bring somebody into my life? Is it visible in the way that I live my life? And then is it visible in my family? He says in verse 7, show yourselves in all respect to be a model. And this is the word, the Greek word tupos, which is an onomatopoeia. Okay, so onomatopoeia sounds like... Or toop, toop, toop. It's a blow, and it's if I was to take a hammer and a little emblem or a mold, and I was to whack it on an impressionable surface, surface, and it was to leave an impression. And he's saying that the gospel should leave such an impression on your life that you would be a model of, that you would fight for the integrity of the Word of God and live it out in your life, not just the words, but also live it out in your life in such a way that it leaves an impression that points to Jesus. Clearly, that's the mark of Christ upon their life. But verse 7 says, show yourselves in all respect to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity and dignity. And in 2 Timothy chapter 1, he uses that uh, same word tupos, hupotupos, um, to refer to sound doctrine. So sound life, impression, model in your life and a model in your doctrine. Are those things evident in our lives? Is the gospel seen in the way that we die to ourselves so that others can live? Let's pray. Father, these are, uh, we're scratching the surface, Lord, of, of such a vast, enormous, enormous subject. God, marriages are falling apart left and right, and we are looking for love in all of the wrong places. And there is so much dysfunction with the impact of um, the confusion of gender roles and identity and the attack on the institution of marriage and all of these things. And in the midst of that, we argue for political positions when the most important thing is that the gospel would be displayed in our lives, God. The definitions do matter in that they more accurately can communicate the gospel to the world. But Lord, to the degree that our society punts all biblical definitions, doesn't matter. May we, the body of Christ, be examples of the model, the impression left through Jesus, that the gospel would be evident in the way that we do families, regardless of how the world around us does family. doesn't matter. Regardless of the way the world around us does gender, roles, identity, marriage, whatever, God, help us to be informed biblically, not to try to conform externally just by we look right, 
but may it flow from a right understanding and surrenderedness to the gospel. So even now, God, as we sing this final song, and we have this moment to pause, God, may we repent and trust Jesus. May we repent of our false definitions and our confusion and be committed to allowing you to live and love through us. May we die to ourselves. May men die to themselves of self-seeking satisfaction and gratification. And may women die to themselves of trying to find significance and identity in things other than Jesus and letting you live in and through their lives. God, for the young men and women here, God, I pray that you would help them to, to begin to hammer out a biblical understanding of who you call us to be. In Jesus' name, his glory, we pray.